You can open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, scroll to, if you will, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we continue our study of the book of 1 Thessalonians. We looked at verses 1 and 2 last week. We'll pick up with verse 3 this week. Let me just read 1, 2, and 3 just to get us started and set the context. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1 says, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 is blunt. This is one of those verses that just says it plainly. There's no room for negotiation. It is a clear statement. A slightly more literal version would be God's will for you is holiness, to be holding yourself away from sexual immorality. We've seen this last week when we looked at verses 1 and 2, that essentially Paul, at the last couple of chapters of 1 Thessalonians, is going to address a series of topics, um, topics which may be um, filling out material that he had taught when he was there and had to flee, topics which may have come up from Timothy having gone up to Thessalonica and coming back to Paul and saying there's a problem in this area or there are questions in this area. And, and so Paul is going to go through this series of topics, and the heading for all of it is grow in pleasing God. That's what we looked at last week in, in verses 1 and 2, that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are to continue to grow in pleasing God in areas like sex and work and interpersonal relationships. All of that falls under this heading. And so sexual purity pleases God. So Christians are called to abstain from immorality. It's the heartbeat of what we're going to look at this morning in verses 3 through 8. Sexual purity pleases God, so Christians are called to abstain from immorality. So we have that framework that says, grow in pleasing God. There are areas of life where we continue to learn, to understand, to apply into our thinking and our speaking and our acting. And so he's addressing them one at a time, and he's calling now for living to please God in this area of sexuality. The reality of what he's saying when he says grow in pleasing God is that you and I don't arrive on this side of eternity. We don't reach perfect maturity. We can never claim to have hit that point where I am spiritually mature. We always find ourselves in the process of maturing, so by God's grace we can look back and see how we have grown and matured from a year or two ago, but by God's grace we are going to continue to grow and mature and apply more of God's truth to more areas of our lives. And so we should be walking in that way, always conscious of the fact that there are still areas in life of which maybe I've not even fully thought about yet, in which I fall short of pleasing God. And that's important because this topic that we're going to talk about this morning, this topic of sexual sin, will weigh heavy for most of us. And it may, frankly, provoke feelings of guilt or despair or regret for some, I could rattle off all of the sad data that says how prevalent these problems are, the growing percentage of people who view porn, who have sex not married, who violate their marriage through adultery, who are engaged in some kind of illicit sexual activity, not to mention the untold numbers of people who may not do those specific things, but who fantasize about them, who struggle with lust in those areas. Very few of us could check 
never any of the above to that list that I've just given. We've all been affected or influenced at minimum in one way or another by our own or someone else's sexual sin. Here's, here's the point I want to give you just in terms of introduction on this. My hope for you is that you don't leave this morning filled with regret and despair. If you are struggling with sin in these areas, then there may well be pain and consequence. That's just the reality of sin. That's the fact of sin, and that's, that's not always something that just sort of magically goes away. There are consequences that come with our sin. But the aim for you this morning is to see God's good way forward, to see that, that God in his kindness wants to be Lord over this aspect of our lives, wants to lead us in terms of dealing with sex and wants to bring us to repentance before him, acknowledging sexual sin for the awfulness that it is, but also finding hope and grace from Jesus Christ and hope for God's way forward from his wisdom. The new believers in Jesus Christ who are in Thessalonica, who first get this letter, are immersed in a culture where this is rampant. We think of it in our culture, very much saturated in that. Not a whole lot different. The only uh, difference really for us is that technology allows this stuff to all be more readily available and to happen faster. But as far as cultural attitudes toward promiscuity, toward sexual immorality, very much the same. And in fact, amongst these Gentiles who came to faith in Jesus Christ, the, the non-Jews who came to faith in Jesus Christ, many of them were coming out of religions that actually prescribed immorality as part of the religious practice, particularly for males. This was a, a male-dominated culture in the first century, and so the practice of participating with prostitutes at the temple was something that men were prescribed to do in worship from the time that they were older teens. And so they are, they are immersed in this taught this, it's accepted, it is a prevalent way of life that they are coming out of. And so now, as they are being brought to see Jesus Christ and the gospel and the grace of God and the holiness of God, you've got to believe that at some point, as the convicting work of the Holy Spirit begins working, there is some brokenness now over what has been the, the remnants of this life that they have been living. And some are still struggling. The fact that, that Paul writes this tells us that Timothy came back, and at least part of what Timothy said is there, there's still some issues. They're surrounded by this. There's still this constant temptation. And this is a topic that needs to be addressed, and so it is for you and I, a desperate need for God's truth to address this area if we are desiring to see that we are pleasing God in these areas of our life. And so whatever baggage you bring to the table in this, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, God wants to show you this is what pleases him. This is what he calls you to. This is what he urges you to. This is what he gives you grace for and equips you for in following him. Now, one more thing, just by way of introduction. If you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, if you have not come to the place of believing that Jesus Christ came as the Son of God and that he gave his life as a ransom for your sin, that his death on the cross was not merely some symbolic act but was rather him taking your sin on himself and experiencing the wrath of his Father and the punishment for sin. If you have not believed in that and are trusting that Jesus' death and resurrection defeated sin and death to give to you forgiveness and life, then by the time we are done this morning, you may feel regret 
and despair and perhaps even anger. Because the biblical picture here is that you are standing before your creator still in your sin. You are still lost and in bondage to your sin and in need of salvation. What we have been singing about this morning, who the Son sets free, is, is a beautiful picture of what we see in the New Testament, of the grace of God and salvation that provides forgiveness and sets us free from the bondage of sin. And so I would, I would urge you this morning, the antidote for you is to admit your rebellion against God and run to Jesus Christ and believe that he died for you and rose again and trust in him. So with that in mind, here's, here's the plan. We're going to start with two clear principles about holiness. That's the, that's the key word in this passage, really, is holiness. Sanctification, you'll also see it's the same word in the Greek. So a couple of principles about holiness, a couple of answers to the question of why holiness, why it's emphasized so strongly here, and a couple of answers to the how question. How do we walk in holiness? And so let me read the larger passage now. We'll pick up in verse 3 again. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, and we'll read down through verse 8. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So verse 3 starts with four. Four, this is God's will. This is the will of God. The four is to connect back to verses 1 and 2. So remember, the, the overarching theme, God desires that we grow in pleasing him for, and what essentially Paul's doing there is saying, let me explain that. Let me show you what that looks like. You want to please God, so let me, let me now begin to unfold that for you in very practical terms. And he starts immediately with, here is a specific area that God wants you to please him in your life. And he says, this is the will of God. In other words, God's will for you is this. Verse 3 is not saying this is the, the sum total of God's will for your life, but it is very plainly saying this, what I'm about to say, is clearly God's will. This is something God wants you to do. So if you're ever at a point in questioning, what does God want me to do? Verse 3 is one of those places where you have the answer to that question unambiguously. God wants you to pursue holiness. That's the first principle. Holiness is God's will for his people. Holiness pleases God. Most English translations use the word sanctification there in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. It's another form of the same Greek word that you see in verse Four, when it says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness. And then verse 7, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Same Greek root at, at all of those, sanctification and holiness. It's the subject of the sentence in verse 3. Paul's just kind of distinguishing it that um, your holiness is God's will. So that's the subject, being holy. Being sanctified is God's will. It's the object then in verses 4 and 7. See, you get a little bonus English grammar. Remember, subject, verb, object. You homeschoolers, you, you've got that, right? You are to be controlling your body in holiness, so it's object, or you are to be called for holiness. The, the Greek word behind that, hagiosmos, is the idea of separated. Separated for a purpose. So when we think of holiness or sanctification, they sound like 
big words, sort of distant concepts to us, things we apply to God, holy, holy, holy. But the, the word essentially means set apart for a purpose, something that has been distinctively set apart for a reason. Think to mom's or grandma's special dishes that sat in the cabinet, that special china that came out at Christmas or Thanksgiving that you didn't fling around in the kitchen sink and you were always careful around that particular cabinet because that's the special china, right? That's the idea of this word for holiness or sanctification, that something has been set apart for a purpose, for a significant reason. And so when you began trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior... The way scripture describes that is God does a work in you where you now who live in the world and who are tied in with all of the world's ways and all of the world's sin, by God's grace when you are saved, he now takes you to be his own. You are, as it were, set apart so that Jesus Christ can say, in the world, but no longer of the world, now belonging to God, now uniquely his. There's a place in Acts 17 where Paul acknowledges the fact that, that unbelievers in their description of God see, see all of mankind as offspring of God. And there's a sense in which that's true in that we are made by him and we are in his image. But the New Testament very clearly teaches that those who are uniquely gods, who have the ability to refer to him as Abba Father, who, who are brought into his family for eternity... And, and who are brothers and sisters and members of the body of Christ are those who have been saved. They are set apart, if you will, separated out. God no longer identifies you as a believer in Jesus Christ as just being part of the, the world, but as being his, as being belonging to him. And so that's that sort of initial sanctification. What we're talking about here in, in chapter 4 is what we would call progressive sanctification. In other words, I am that person who has been separated out from the world by identity from God, he, he sees me in Christ. I am growing to look more like that. This is who God has made me, and so now as I live my life, I'm striving to be more like Christ, less like the world, more like Christ so that people see Christ in me. And so that's that progressive holiness, that growth in holiness, that growth in sanctification. It's the essence of what we talked about last week. We read God's word, the instructions, the corrections, the exhortations for the purpose of pleasing him and being more like Christ, looking more distinctive to the world so that they see Christ in us. And that growth is holiness or sanctification. So that's what verse 3, when it says, this is God's will for you. Your sanctification is God's will. Your holiness is God's will. So that's the first principle. Now the second one is, here's an application of what that looks like that you abstain from sexual immorality. So holiness includes abstaining from sexual immorality. So this is that point where holiness is not just some concept. It's not just some theological definition. It's not just something we sing about in relationship to God. It is very practical. Holiness now is seen in, in how we live and the choices that we make. It's very tangible. Richard Phillips writes, sanctification is expressed Physically. Holiness is rooted in our hearts, but always expressed in our actions. Notice how concrete is Paul's view of holiness and how bodily is its fulfillment. The language in verse 3 is unambiguous. Abstaining from sexual sin is one of God's 
clear ways for you and I to please him by living in holiness. He's, he's giving us a very concrete explanation here. If we go holiness, I, I, what is holiness? Well, here's one element of holiness. It is abstaining from sexual immorality. The Greek word for sexual immorality is porneia. That rings a bell. Our word pornography has its roots in porneia. Linguists say that the word initially had the, the meaning of, of, of dealing with prostitution, but that by the time Paul would have used this in the first century, porneo was widely understood to uh, mean the whole broad area of illicit sexual activity. Adultery, fornication, you name it, it's all sort of covered under this blanket term. In fact, when Paul writes this and it says, um, that you abstain from sexual immorality. There's actually a, a definite article in the Greek in, the, in that it says that you abstain from the sexual immorality. And, and, and all his point there is to say the whole class of this stuff, all of the porneia, stay away from it. Hold yourself away from that. There are secular folks who try desperately to water down the commands of God's word. So they'll say, well, this, is, this was talking about some specific kind of sexual activity that happened. This isn't talking about all illicit activity. The problem is there's nothing in the text to sustain that. And he uses other words in this passage to make his point, like verse 5 when he says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. So he uses the phrase lustful passions to expand on what he means by porneia. And then in verse 7, when he says God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness, he is sort of piling up synonyms at this point to make it clear that he is talking about sexual activity that, out, that happens outside of what God has ordained between a husband and a wife. And so when verse 7 says we are called not for impurity, the Greek word there means uncleanness in sexuality outside of prostitution, which was already covered under porneia. And so he is just using synonyms and using instructions to make sure that we get the point by saying it in just three different ways. Abstain from sexual immorality. Do not yield to lustful passions like the Gentiles, another phrase for unbelievers, like unbelievers do. And then you are not called to impurity, but to its opposite, which is holiness. So holiness is part of God's will for us. Abstaining from sexual immorality is part of what holiness looks like in our lives. So we go to the why question then. Why, why do we do this? We may think, well, that's, that's a silly question. But again, if you're a believer in Thessalonica in the first century and you have been in religions where sexual immorality has been prescribed, you are now coming face to face with the God of creation. And, and, and so now there's some why questions. Well, why is this so different? Why does this look the way it does? Why does God say to abstain from this? So two answers that I think are in this passage. We're going to jump down, look at these, and, and then we'll come back to some of the verses we passed by. But the first answer is pursuing holiness by abstaining from sexual immorality is one of the ways that we love other people. It is how we show love to other people. So take verse 6, for instance, says we are to abstain from sexual immorality. Verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. There's an there's a important link here, and, and Stuart pointed it out a couple of weeks ago. Remember when we looked at 
Paul's prayer at the end of chapter 3. He's praying for the Thessalonians at the end of chapter 3. And in verse 12 of chapter 3, he says, I am praying that the Lord would make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So I'm praying that you would grow in love. But then verse 13 says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Isn't that an interesting connection? I want you to grow in brotherly love, and that will then influence your holiness. That will cause you to grow in holiness as you grow in brotherly love. That's the same connection, I think, that he's bringing to mind here in verse 6 when he says, I don't want you to be unholy with other people because then you would be transgressing and wronging your brother. You would be doing the opposite of loving your brother. You would be hating your brother by, by transgressing against him. Our, our culture has this tendency sometimes to portray some forms of sexual sin under the, the heading of victimless. Nobody gets hurt in this. These are two consenting adults, or this is one adult who's finding self-pleasure in viewing images. What's wrong with that? Nobody's getting hurt. There's no victim here, right? That is not at all God's view on this. And that's why in verse 6, he says, by doing this, you would be transgressing and wronging another person. The, 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 the words that he uses there have the idea of overreach, of, of trespassing, if you will, of, of stealing, of, of moving into an area that's not yours and taking something that doesn't belong to you. That's the language he's communicating here. Sexual sin is a form of trespassing and theft. 1 Corinthians 7 Talking about sex within marriage, verse 2 says, Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That is not a license to force someone to do something they don't want to do, but rather it is, it is meant to be for us a picture of God's design of the depth of intimacy that happens within the bounds of marriage. It is, a, it is a picture of God's desire that a husband and wife willingly, joyously, gladly give themselves to one another sexually. There is a depth in that relationship that surpasses any bond amongst human beings, human bond, that is. Jesus Christ described that in Mark 10. The man shall leave his father and mother, right? Cleave to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh, right? The two become one. This is Jesus describing, again, the uniqueness of the bond. They are no longer two, but one. And so, there, in the words of Jesus, then in 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul speaks of the bodies belonging to one another, it, it's a description of the sacred union between husband and wife, and that's what's in mind here when we come to, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you are taking sexual pleasure from someone other than your spouse, even if it's only lust, God says you are trespassing. You are stepping, as it were, across lines that you shouldn't step and taking something that doesn't belong to you. You are transgressing against another man's wife or, at minimum, another man's daughter. You are stepping into an area that you shouldn't be instead of loving that person. 
which is what we are called to, brotherly love. Instead of sacrificially loving that person and desiring for that person God's very best, you are sinning against that person, and in the process, sinning against that person's spouse or future spouse by taking something that doesn't belong to you that God intended to be shared amongst two people in an exclusive way. Even if that woman has foolishly decided to get paid for posing that way, you're not looking at her as you should, as a human being made in the image of God and desperately in need of Jesus Christ as Savior. What we do instead is just turn that person into an object for pleasure and and, and simply to gratify self as opposed to sacrificially loving. You are sinning against her. If you're an unmarried believer in Jesus Christ and you are intimate with another unmarried person, you are not only showing that person a low view of how you see God and his word, but but even more so, you are taking something that's not yours. You're not showing Christ-like love to somebody who may someday frankly, become someone else's spouse, or you may become someone else's spouse. That may not all work out, and yet you've you've gone ahead and taken something that may be for someone else. You may end up marrying someone else, and you're already defrauding the person whom you will marry. And obviously, this, this idea of theft and trespassing certainly carries over into adultery and marriage. When you, when you clearly do this against your own spouse that, that God has given you. We're called to a sacrificial, Christ-like love for other people. If that brotherly love drives us, then then the motivating factor is what's the best I can wish, desire, hope for, do for this person. And, And dragging that person into my desire for sinful pleasure is not that at all. That's the first thing, is it's a, a way of demonstrating love for others. The second thing is abstaining from sexual immorality is one of the ways we reflect the character of God. Verse 7 says, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. He's called us to holiness. Why? Because holiness reflects the character of God. Because God is perfectly holy. And to the degree that holiness is evident in our lives, we are showing people a glimpse of the character of the God that we believe in and who we profess to be Lord over our lives. God is completely holy and separate from sin. And so the, the warning, when he, that he goes on from that in verse 8, and, and both of these statements we've looked at come with warnings. This one in verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his spirit. The, the previous one, when it came to brotherly love, Back in verse 6, said, don't transgress and wrong. The Lord is an avenger in these things, as we told you beforehand. So if you have been transgressed upon by someone and, and it may hurt, know that there is a God who says, I will be just in this. Ultimately, there is God's promise of him taking care of it by his justice. Here he says, holiness reflects me. You must reflect that if you, if you don't do this, then it's as if you're disregarding God. The word there for disregard has the idea of abolish something. To disregard simply is to just say, I don't see you. You're not here. It's what, frankly, we have to do when we we are going to carry on in sinful behavior, knowing that we are in the presence of our Creator. In Him we live and move and have our being, as Paul wrote in Acts 17. Somehow we've got to shut that out and see... God is not here right now. 
God is abolished as far as that goes, at least temporarily. And that, that's the picture he's giving here. You're, you're disregarding God while you're wallowing in your sin. There's an interesting distinction he makes in verse 8 when he says, Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I pause at that moment and go, wait, we just saw that it is sin against man, that there is transgression and wronging of, of other human beings, so it's not like that isn't an issue here. What Paul's saying in verse 8 has something to say about the magnitude of our sin against God, the, the depth of our sin against God. This is sort of reminiscent, I think, of David in Psalm 51. Remember when David is confessing his sin, he has committed adultery. He has taken the lead brazenly in adultery and called Bathsheba to his palace and carried on in sexual sin. And then as if that's not enough, he then sets a plan in motion to have her husband killed in battle. And so he has clearly sinned against human beings in that case to the point of destroying a man by taking his wife and then having him killed. And yet in Psalm 51.4, when David prays to God, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David destroyed this man. But his point that he's making there that I, I think perhaps gets lost on us, I think is similar to what Paul's emphasizing in verse 8. And that is, yes, you do wrong someone. You transgress against someone when you commit sexual sin. But consider the arrogance of standing in the very presence of God and carrying out something that he has forbidden, that he has called you away from, that he has promised better for you if you will walk in his will, in his will and instead you are essentially shaking your fist in him and saying, for the sake of my pleasure, I will be like God in this moment. And that's what he's calling us to at that moment is to, to see the, the brazenness and shamelessness of that. God's very spirit lives within us. And so participating in immorality is like taking a, a part of the body of Christ and joining it to that. And we do that mentally by just sort of temporarily clocking out, if you will, on God as if he's not there. And I think we take that arrogance a step further when we do that and we, we tremble with fear at the possibility of getting caught by someone. We're deathly afraid that someone's going to find us out, and yet we're sort of casual about our confession to God. Oh, Lord, I can't believe I did this. I'm sorry. And, and, and it's this fear of getting caught and this sort of casual attitude toward God, as if that doesn't matter, when in fact, if, if standing before the holy God of the universe, knowing that we have flat out disobeyed and taken our body, which is a temple of his spirit, and joined it to some kind of sexual sin, if standing before him doesn't affect our souls in some way to cause us to grieve that sin and repent before him, and all we're concerned about is the immediate consequences, something's wrong at that point. And that's what Paul's trying to say here to us, that you, you disregard this, and you're not disregarding man. You're disregarding God who has given his Holy Spirit to you. You are arrogantly offending God. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, the, the beautiful picture in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians in particular, talks about us being vessels, that we are like clay vessels in whom is placed this remarkable treasure, this wonderful light that sort of emanates from our, our weak 
clay vessel pots, if you will. And so the picture is Christ is in you through his spirit. That's why Jesus Christ, when he's walking with his disciples and he's saying, I'm about to go away from you, and they are dismayed at that. How are we going to go on without you being here? And Jesus' response to them in the Gospel of John is, it'll actually be better for you because it won't just be a sort of temporal, physical thing where I'm next to you. I'll actually be in you. My spirit will dwell in you, and I will comfort you and guide you and remind you of my words, and I will be with you. And so therefore, 1 Corinthians 6 on this topic of sexual immorality warns and says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Then he goes on and says, flee from sexual immorality. The issue is not just prostitution. The issue is that our lives are living testimonies of the God who dwells in us of the Savior who has redeemed us and who by his Spirit is transforming us to be more like him. Your body is a temple of his Spirit, and so what you are doing with it is giving a picture to the world, to your children, to your spouse, to those around you. It's giving them a glimpse into Jesus Christ. And so we, we need to be studying and meditating on the character of God so that we would better reflect that and abstaining from sexual immorality, especially in a culture like ours that doesn't simply permit sexual immorality but promotes it on every level, standing apart and and trusting in Jesus Christ and pursuing holiness suddenly gives people a high view of the God we believe in. They They may disregard that. They may not want that. But nonetheless, it certainly shows them our esteem and our honor for our Lord if we live differently in this area. So there's the why, loving others and reflecting the character of God, a little bit on the how in terms of the practical wisdom he talks about in this passage. And I think there's, I think there's two answers. I want to kind of join them together. We abstain from sexual immorality, he says here, by controlling our bodies and not yielding to sexual urges, and we do those by knowing and obeying God's truth. There's a knowledge component to this that is so crucial. Look back at verse 4. He's just said abstain from sexual immorality, verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So there's the the idea again. Verse 4 says that when we live in holiness, we are bringing honor, honor both to other people that we are loving and honor, more importantly, even to God by how we are presenting our bodies back to him and living for him. And he reiterates that, again, 1 Corinthians 6, slightly different way when it says flee sexual immorality. It says because you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. So living in holiness, abstaining from sexual immorality, honors the creator, honors those made in his image. And to do that, he says in verse 6, requires, by God's grace, self-discipline, that each of you know how to control his own body. The word for control means to take possession of something. It was used in, in the commercial sense in the first century to describe acquiring purchasing something to be your own, that each one know how to take ownership over his body. This is not a a rejection of the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is a lesson to us in self-discipline by God's grace. The point of 
denying the flesh of what the, the old theologians would call mortifying the flesh, putting to death those kinds of desires by taking possession of our physical senses and taking responsibility for those. You control your body. You and I are called to take possession of our bodies, to manage them as owners do. We're to take charge by guarding our hearts, by guarding our eyes. I will set no evil thing before me, David writes. By guarding what we look at, guarding what we think on so that what goes into our hearts and then begins to generate in that factory of desires is shaped by what we're looking at and thinking on. Take control of your body, he says, not yielding it to lust. Verse 5 speaks of unbelievers, Gentiles, being consumed by the passion of lust is the, the term there. The ancient writers wrote a lot about this. There's nothing new under the sun. So even back in the first century and beyond, they were writing things like irrational. these passions are irrational movements of the soul. One wrote, it is a troubled movement of the soul, an intemperate longing, disobedient to reason, that may rightly be termed desire or lust. It is the ancient writers trying to capture what we've all experienced if, as you've been an unbeliever and what the world experiences, and that is there just seems to be this consuming call towards sexual sin. The temptation sometimes seems so overwhelming, and there's this urging, and it seems irrational, and it's troubling. And, and we can read Proverbs 5 where it basically says you walk down that path and you are bringing destruction on yourself to go that way. It's just, there, there's nothing good that will come of it. And there just seems to be this irrational draw that says, but I, I, I want that pleasure for just a moment. And he's saying, you don't need to be given over to the passion of lust, this stuff that destroys. Because as believers... We're calling God a liar if we say, God, I can't control this. I, I just, this is just, this just comes over me and, and I can't control these desires because by his grace, sin no longer enslaves us. We have been set free to deny lustful passions, the same things that consume people who are without Christ. And so Romans 6.11 says we should count ourselves, consider ourselves, reckon ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It is that, that thinking, that thinking that says, I have been set free from this, and I need to think as one who identifies with Christ. I am dead to sin, and that is true, and so I am not consumed by this. One of the keys to all this is knowledge. That's why he says twice in verses 4 and 5, he speaks of what you know. Verse 4, again, each of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor. Unlike the Gentiles who do not know God, we know how to control our bodies, to not yield to desires and urges like people who do not know God. The desires in our hearts are not acting randomly and independently of how we're thinking and what we're looking at and what we're meditating on. They are a product of what we allow our mind to dwell on, of what we allow ourselves to watch, what we give ourselves the freedom to take in. There's a YouTube video out, one of these TED Talks of a German medical student that is a discussion on pedophilia, and she is speaking to this large, attentive audience, and the gist of her argument is sexual urges are just part of who you are, and you can't change them, and so she argues you can't blame a pedophile for desiring sex with a pre-adolescent child. She does, 
to her credit, and I use the term credit loosely, she does say that it's still wrong, you can't act on those urges, but you can't help those urges at the same time as her point, it's just part of who you are. And she ends with the quote, no one is responsible for their feelings, but everyone is responsible for their actions. That's half right. <laughs> you are responsible for your actions, we are accountable for the things that we do, and our feelings and our emotions may seem overwhelming and irrational, and they may seem at times like they have just come out of nowhere, and they are troubling and rebellious, yet we're still responsible for what's brewing in our hearts. Secular culture says, it's just, it's just the power of love, right? It's, isn't that what most of the secular love songs, some way or another, sort of treat falling in love, right? The great ancient poet, Elvis, I can't help falling in love with you. I know, you, you do a song, you use a song like that in one of your illustrations, then you're stuck with it in your brain, and you're getting ready for church, and you're singing an Elvis song, going, why am I singing this? That's why God stresses knowledge. Know the truth. Know who he is. Know what he calls you to. Know what he's done for you. Know what he is doing for you. Know how to control your body because you know Christ. You have Christ's spirit in you. You have Christ's word. You can think about temptation. You can, you can think to yourself, I know that this is a temptation in this area. And so here is scripture I'm going to meditate on and memorize and put in my heart. Here is someone who I'm going to call the next time that I'm struggling with this temptation. Here is how I'm going to cry out to God the next time that this even seems to creep into my life. I can think about these things. I can fill my mind with truths about the character of God. I can, I can meditate and praise God for his design for sex within a marriage between a husband and a wife. Because if I do the opposite and, and simply allow my mind to embrace sinful images on a screen or to turn and look at things that I shouldn't, I, I, I can know that that's going to in some way generate desires in my heart. We mock God and his spirit and his truth when we act like we're helpless in this. Because that's what Paul is saying here. He says, no, you know how to control your body. He uses, and, and to give us a visual in this, he used that word abstain in verse 3. A beautiful picture in this word, a powerful picture, because it was used in nautical terminology back in the first century to speak of what a ship's captain was to do when he got too near the shore. He was to hold away from the shore. It was kind of a, a warning word. Don't get near where that reef is. Abstain. You see it, and you know it's there, and so hold yourself away from it. Steer away from disaster. It was a, six or so years ago, there was a, a cruise ship that, that hit a reef along the coast of Italy. 32 people killed, ship destroyed, and it comes out in the trial that the captain had his lover, the woman that he was having an affair with, had less than half his age, that he had brought her on the ship, and she was right there in the command center on the bridge at the time that he ran into ground. And the prosecutor said, guy was a little distracted at the time. And look what it cost him. Look what he destroyed in the process. Sexual sin for unbelievers, Gentiles, as they're called in verse 5, may seem like a normal way of life that they, they do without thinking. They're not meditating on who God is. They're not seeking to hold away from the shore, seeking to abstain. Those urges just come, and it's, might as well enjoy myself. We are called to see people in the image of God and to reflect the holiness of our creator who made us 
and redeemed us and has us as his own and will one day bring us into his presence for eternity. We know better. We're not oblivious to the destruction this causes. We know it from Scripture, the account after account of where sexual sin destroys, and we know it because we've seen it in our own lives. We've seen people around us, and, and, and we can go through the tales of what sexual sin has done and how it has destroyed. Abstaining from sexual immorality ultimately starts in our hearts. We start to replace what should be a passion for God with room for these lustful passions. And what we're called to do instead is to think on God's character, meditate on his will, dwell on the beauty of the gospel, that he would redeem sinners like you and I, that he would save us for his own, that we have a hope before him, and then acting on those truths. Growing in that knowledge, knowing God, who he is, what he's called me to, is what enables me to be more intentional about the choices that I make and is what urges me to cry out for help when I'm feeling like I'm, I'm being drawn in a certain way. It's what urges me to, to steer away from lustful passions. You simply cannot replace the power of knowing God by meditating on his truth. We want some easy, give me a couple steps and I, do, I fill this out and I turn on this program and, and, and it all goes away. And God has said, know me. The difference between you and the Gentiles is they don't know me. You do. Know me better. Know my character better. Be in love with what I am in love with. Love people the way I do. And it is that knowledge of God then that when we do yield to sin should cause us to grieve at disregarding and arrogantly mocking his holiness that should call us to brokenhearted repentance, not just fear of consequences, but knowing that we have sinned against God and that we have wronged people made in his image. The beauty is we're not left there, right? We're not left in despair. The joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that his saving grace forgives our impurity. It forgives the horrible stuff, the dark stuff that happens, we think, in secret, and yet we do blatantly before God. And God, by his grace, is offering a forgiveness that washes us clean from sin stain and restores to us the joy of our salvation. I want to close in prayer. And what I want to do is just have you bow your heads, and I'm going to suggest some things for you, and I'm going to encourage you to pray quietly where you are before God, and I'll just give you some suggestions. You pray as you feel led, but I'll give you some suggestions just to lead in our closing prayer. Would you start by taking a moment to just praise God for his holiness, for who he is? Take a moment just to praise God that he saves sinners, that he, even though he knows our hearts and, and the things in secret, that, that he saves sinners to be his very own. Take a moment and 
there's some areas that you need to confess or you need God's help in identifying in your heart, just take a moment, confess those areas of unholiness where you are struggling with sin and ask for his forgiveness. Take a moment to pray for his spirit to help you in knowing him better, to convict, remind this week, to be in his word, to know him better. Finally, if you're trusting in Christ, would you just praise and thank him for the joy of forgiveness, for the sweet treasure that is his grace toward you. great and holy God, we pray all these things in the name of your sinless Son who gave himself for us, Jesus. Amen.